0: I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know, about tens of thousands who have disappeared.
1: Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally.
0: It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: So on Sunday, Colombians went to the polls to vote in a highly anticipated election, and things have taken a pretty wild turn. None of the candidates won more than 50% of the vote, and that means a second and final round of voting later this month, a runoff race between two anti-establishment candidates. On the left, there is Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla fighter turned longtime politician. He's running for a coalition of left-wing parties that call themselves the Historic Pact, He's been appealing to poorer and working-class Colombians with promises of social programs funded by the rich. And if he wins, he'd make history, becoming the first leftist president ever elected in Colombia. What is not in dispute today is change. President Ivan Duque and the political parties that are his allies have been defeated. Petro's going to face an opponent that surprised a lot of people. Rodolfo Hernandez, a populist business tycoon who's been compared to Donald Trump. He isn't really connected to any political parties. He's running on a platform of decreasing spending and anti-corruption. And he rose up quickly in the polls over the last few weeks. Rodolfo Hernandez got a late boost thanks to a colorful campaign on social media like TikTok. Times are hard in Colombia right now. More than half the population is living in poverty, and inequality has been a key issue in this campaign. The other, inescapable election issue in Colombia is violence. This vote comes after the most tense election campaign in a decade. There were hundreds of reported acts of violence against political and social leaders in the lead-up to the vote and assassination threats against Petro and his vice-presidential candidate, Francia Marquez.
0: Gustavo Petro spoke behind a bulletproof lectern, flanked by men holding ballistic shields. He promised a new era.
1: We can't continue with these inequalities. We can't continue in this eternal and infinite violence that seems to devour our entire society. Six years have passed since the landmark peace deal that ended Colombia's 50-year-long civil war. You might remember how, in that time, Colombia became synonymous with violence. Over 200,000 people were killed, millions displaced, and the peace deal promised a new era. But the government has taken a long time to hold up its end of the deal. Colombia's peace is fragile, and the outcome of this election could have serious consequences. And there's a risk that the country could spiral out of control once again. This week, I'm talking to Angelica Retberg, a professor and researcher of armed conflict and building at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogotá. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Angelica. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it.
0: Tamra, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: So why don't we start by talking a little bit about the election results. So now we're in a runoff situation and Gustavo Petro has won over 40 percent of the vote. Rodolfo Hernandez, he's a real estate tycoon who had sort of a late surge in the campaign. He finished second with 28 percent of the vote. Both of these candidates are pretty different from what I understand. And correct me if I'm wrong, but different from people who've historically led Colombia. What do these results tell us about what Colombians are looking for in a leader right now?
0: Certainly represents
1: fatigue with traditional
0: political parties and the way that politics has traditionally been made in the country. So I think one of the main motivations for Colombian voters in the past elections has been to see change. And they've got it in the way of these two personalities that you just described. They are very different projects in terms of what they offer to the people, but both represent a clear break with the past. Pedro is the first leftist leader to really come this far. Rodolfo Hernández, who is an outsider, who is a pretty much of a wild card in terms of his proposals, because we don't know much about him. He was the mayor of a medium-sized city. We know that he made his fortune via construction, in real estate, at the same time, we know very little about what exactly a potential presidency by Rodolfo Hernández would mean. What I see is likely to happen is that, in fact, many of the votes on the right for Federico Gutiérrez, the leader on the right representing pretty much traditional political parties, uh, pro-establishment, etc., had quite an impressive showing himself. But I mean, he only made it to third place, but still has a sizable number of votes. All of those votes will pretty much uh, support Raúl Fernández, which basically means that we're in the very likely situation that Raúl Fernández will be the next president of Colombia.
1: Up until now, there was a lot of attention and coverage, I think, on how Gustavo Petro could be the first leftist president, like you said. We should also mention his running mate, Francia Marquez. She would be the first Afro-Colombian woman to hold high office in the country. She's this environmentalist who's really galvanized indigenous and black communities in Colombia. And this is also happening in the context of a series of leftist political victories throughout Latin America and Chile, Peru, Honduras. So if he won, would this be part of what people have described as the pink tide? Or is it an oversimplification to look at this as the rise of the left in Colombia?
0: I think it is correct to see this as a moment of opportunity for the left They have learned that they need to differentiate themselves from the Venezuelan project, which has led many people into crisis. So so that serves the right and pretty much any critic of the leftist governments as a perfect example of what they do not want to become. And I think Petro and others like him have learned that lesson. They have tried to moderate their discourse and they've also tried to build alliances with people who are part of the machine of the political parties So it is a left that has, I would say, learned the lessons from the past in the sense that they need to be able and willing to negotiate with sectors that would not originally be part of their project, that they should try to avoid alienating and inspiring fear in people, which is something they've done so far. So I would say they are part of that tide.
1: Based on the coverage that I've read This election has largely been about things like inequality, inflation, other challenges that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And security, which used to be the most important issue for a lot of Colombians, wasn't the main issue this time around. But how did security factor into this election cycle, or how is it still factoring into this election? Despite the
0: fact that homicides are down to historically low levels in Colombia. Of course, Colombia is still one of the most violent countries in Latin America. So in that sense, even though the numbers have declined significantly, and you can feel that in terms of the quality of life in many regions of the country, there still are regions that are engulfed by violence. This is manifest to people in terms of actually being threatened if you're a local leader in rural areas. There are organizations that are still active in terms of illicit economies operating in those areas, which produce violence. 80% of Colombia's population is urban, which means that most votes come from urban areas, means that most taxes are paid in urban areas, means that most jobs, formal jobs, are in urban areas. The rural areas of Colombia are still not a land of opportunity as they should be. Much of this violence that we were just talking about happens in those rural areas, despite the fact that neither armed conflict nor the peace agreement of 2016 between the government and FARC played a central role in this uh, election campaign. It still is a concern for the candidates, it is a concern for society, and it's something that people will care about when they make their final decision between the two candidates.
1: I want to go a bit deeper on the current security climate in Colombia, but before we do that, let's talk about the 2016 peace deal. This was the landmark agreement between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, also known as FARC.
0: In September, President Santos of Colombia and Timochenko, the leader of the FARC, both signed the deal.
1: It was a historic peace agreement leaders and heads of state from all over the world uh, came together. It was a massive celebration. FARC was a Marxist guerrilla group, the biggest guerrilla movement in the country, and its stated goals were wealth, redistribution, and fighting the influence of foreign governments and multinational corporations. The peace deal ended the civil war between them and the Colombian government. The longest-running conflict in the world, a corrupted human rights campaign by impoverished farmers in Colombia that turned to drugs and kidnapping. And on the government side, allegations of atrocities in the name of counterterrorism. If we could quickly summarize for people who aren't familiar with it, what did both sides agree to as part of that deal? What were the reforms that the government promised in response to rebels laying down their arms?
0: So FARC was what we would call a rural or an agrarian-based guerrilla. It it was always concerned about land tenure, uh, who owns land, and what was done with the land that was available in the country. So it was a very peasant, interested-oriented kind of guerrilla. So unsurprisingly, uh, rural reform was part of the peace deal.
1: During the Civil War, infrastructure in rural areas of the country fell apart. And people turned to the drug economy, making coca for the cartels to survive. The peace deal promised to bring infrastructure to these communities and give farmers a way out. Get rid of your coca crops and the government will support you while you switch to another crop. And this has been happening, but very slowly.
0: Former government advisers say the current administration has given up on the substitution programs, abandoning promises made to the farmers and forcing many to return to the crop.
1: The deal was also supposed to help with unequal distribution of land in Colombia. The government promised to give land titles to thousands of farmers and give more land to small and medium-sized farmers
0: pretty much don't have to be a part of a guerrilla to see that there is a huge problem of inequality in land ownership and credit and tenure in the country. So that was a big issue for FARC and an easy concession for the government to make because for everyone it was clear that the way land is distributed in the country is a problem for productivity and is certainly one of the main roots of inequality
1: in the country. As of last June, the government had only met 4% of its rural reform commitments. But that was just one part of the deal.
0: There were significant steps related to political participation, one of which consisted of helping FARC turn into a political party with guaranteed seats in Congress for two legislative periods. So FARC party has five seats in the Chamber of Representatives, five seats in the Senate, After a five-day political convention, they kept their acronym FARC, but changed its meaning to the common alternative revolutionary force. Gone are the rifles from their logo, replaced by a single red rose with a socialist star at the center. One of the main aspects, of course, had to do with demobilizing a huge force of around 12,000 men and women, many of whom had been recruited while being minors, and to have them concentrate themselves in camps across the country.
1: In Colombia's Andes Mountains, hundreds of FARC rebels are preparing for the first phase of disarmament. These men and women are in one of the country's 26 demarcated transition zones, where the guerrillas are expected to disarm.
0: Some of them remain in those areas, some of many have left as well. And then finally, there was a huge transitional justice infrastructure put into place, consisting of a truth commission of a special peace jurisdiction, which would hear all the different human rights violations committed by all the sides. So for instance, FARC, after having historically said that kidnappings were part of a strategy and were a valid way of raising funds for their organization, now have conceded that in fact, The more than 20,000 kidnappings which they are responsible for uh, caused uh, incredible suffering and harmed the, the population. At the same time, people in the military forces have admitted that they were part of the body count policy that hurt many peasants in Colombia. What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're now about a third of the way into the timeline of the deal, which is supposed to last for 15 years. And I wonder if we can go back to talk a little bit more about the security situation in Colombia right now. What are the biggest issues when it comes to security, especially in the rural parts of the country? How would you describe it? So despite the fact that the peace deal included a whole chapter
0: on combating illicit drugs. Of course, we all know that a peace deal will not be able to end a very lucrative drug trade, which has funded and fueled Colombian organizations ever since the 1980s. There have been significant efforts, and the peace deal is one of them, to actually change the conditions for farmers on the ground and make sure that they stop growing illicit crops in exchange for illicit possibilities while that happens and since it's very difficult to find products that are as lucrative as coca leaves the criminal organizations are still controlling many of the illicit crops that are being grown in the country it's not like you know colombia is inundated with coca it is not but it's true that where it is there is lots of economic opportunity for the actors that control the illicit crops there's a lot of competition over territories engaged in this kind of economic activity and and therefore there's lots of violence related to illicit economies in those parts of the country. At least 78 human rights defenders were killed in Colombia in 2021 according to the United Nations Human Rights Office in that South American country. The figure doesn't represent the total number of murders of human rights activists in Colombia but the cases that they have known and verified.
1: In a lot of rural Colombia, after FARC laid down their weapons, the government never arrived.
0: Other actors moved in. There was, at the time, a big call for the state to be ready to display its capacity in these areas, make sure that other actors wouldn't come up, and that just didn't happen. So now we have new renewed competition of criminal actors, some of which are dissident fighters from FARC, but others are just new groups or groups that had always been around, but now have a new opportunity to control these areas, trying to have access to the still very lucrative activity related to illicit economies. And all of that produces violence. It's very targeted, I would say. I mean, mm. it's not like at other times in Colombian history when there were you know, massacres to control the population, but they do care about control of the business and that causes violence in many of these areas.
1: Earlier this month, there was something called an armed strike. It happened in the northern half of the country and it was organized by the biggest drug cartel in the country, one of the biggest employers in the region. They did this in response to the extradition of one of their bosses to the U.S. and they told people stay inside or risk getting shot. They blocked roads, they burned cars, 24 people were killed. And for four days, they basically shut down a huge swath of the country. Is this a sign that the government's security strategy is failing? This is
0: the typical case of a criminal organization related to the drug trade that controls territory, and which has, in fact, capacity to intimidate population, as they were able to show here. It is true that in many of these territories, these actors do not only operate as economic actors, but they in fact have some capability of addressing political needs by the population. They will allocate disputes among neighbors. It is surprising to me that the president did not move to the region much earlier in the strike to show authority. And I think this really shows a lost opportunity to stand up against some of these criminal organizations. This also confirms what I said earlier. I mean, these are criminal organizations that were able to grow and flourish in the aftermath of the peace deal, who recycled territorial control practices that were learned and developed in the past and which are very hard to eradicate as long as the Colombian state does not have a nationwide presence that is not only of a military nature, but that also has social and economic roots, which are currently missing in some of those regions.
1: Is it fair to say that the security situation in Colombia is deteriorating or that it's very fragile right now? Is that a fair characterization? I would agree with the fragility in those regions that I mentioned.
0: I think sometimes we make the mistake of, starting to count on the day the peace deal was signed. And it's better to take a step back and look at Colombia in the past, maybe generation or so. This is a story of a country that has produced violence from every pretty, every corner of possible social uh, disagreement. And this really is important to stress because sometimes the idea that Things have gotten worse since the peace deal would suggest that these are problems that have only arisen with the peace deal, which is just simply not true. Everything has made some progress, but Mm -hmm. the one that is clearly lagging behind is rural reform.
1: Yeah. Why has progress been slower on that front? What have been the challenges of implementing that part of the deal? It's a
0: very profound structural reform. I mean, the the way land is structured in Colombia pretty much goes back to colonial times. So to produce change is difficult because the way land is distributed and cultivated is very much impregnated to many aspects of the structure of the state. So to reform that is a huge undertaking that requires lots of technical expertise, but requires especially political will landed, elites who are still strong in the country have representation in Congress. And even if they do not have that, the fear that by affecting the land structure, you will unleash a significant social transformation, I think is a a very strong argument for many to sort of stay away from the possibility of actual reform.
1: What do you think the election of either Gustavo Petro or Rodolfo Hernandez, what would it mean for the implementation of the peace deal?
0: Both have stressed openly and and clearly that they will support the ongoing implementation of the peace deal, which I think is is great news. At the same time, I think they will face the same problems resource-wise and structural reform-wise. For instance, the fact that rural reform has been slow to be developed I think will not be easily overcome by either of the two. They also will have to fight significant backlash and opposition from landed elites, from people fearing for the stability of the status quo of the establishment. So I, I would not expect the fact that a new executive is all in favor of the agreement to make it easier for that agreement to be implemented. Uh, Rodolfo Hernandez has said that he is very unsatisfied with the war on drugs. He has said, he, he hasn't made many proposals, but one of the things he has said is that he will focus pretty much on prevention of Uh, consumption and prevention of uh, for new peasants to fall into the possibility of illicit crops.
1: Petro has said that he would want to legalize the drug trade and renegotiate the trade deal that Colombia has with the U.S. So Colombia's agriculture sector wouldn't need to rely as much on coca production. What do you think his election would mean for the drug trade in Colombia? Colombia's illicit crop problem is
0: not Colombia's alone or is not for Colombia alone to solve. This is a systemic problem. And Petro, of course, knows that and everybody knows that. I would assume that Petro president, if if he should win, would be able to make some points on this matter. But then also let's not forget that Colombia and much of Latin America is still pretty much a backyard region. It's not of strategic value to the U.S. right now. So I'm not sure that a U.S. government would be willing to open that front of the debate, which pretty Mm -hmm. much would cause problems for Petro because they'll probably be frustrated. At the same time, there is stuff that he can make as a president, which is this other part of the deal, which is supporting Colombian peasants currently engaged in illicit crops trying to improve situations for rural workers. That is something that I would say many people agree on in Colombia. That was part of the national strike demands over the past year. So that is something that, as a Colombian president, he can improve.
1: I've seen some experts say that time is running out to implement the peace deal. How important do you think this next presidency is to finding and sustaining peace in Colombia? Like, do you think that the window is closing, as some people have suggested?
0: I don't think the window is closing. I know that peace building processes are never a linear process. There's always setbacks and there's always times of greater activity and greater risk than others. So I would not I think the window is closing, but I do feel that both, I mean, both candidates have a huge opportunity to really push the agreement forward the implementation was designed to take 15 years. So we are only five years into a huge program of social transformation. What I would think is that both candidates understand that this is a strategic opportunity. Since many of the violence that is currently happening happens in the regions that are expecting these huge investments, which is where illicit crops grow, et cetera, I think any government really already pretty much has a plan in the agreement to address the problems of those regions.
1: Angelica, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing Is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. Our sound designer this week is Evan Kelly. And our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick mccabe Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Chavison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.